Well, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Steve Bell. I'm a partner in the Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. This podcast replaces our third safety leadership series uh, session, which was a session we were running on incident response. And would you believe it, uh, two of the presenters involved in that session when we'd originally planned it uh, actually were called away with our clients to respond to incidents. And so uh, it wasn't quite the right time to run the session, but it was a good reminder of just how ever present uh, this issue is for our clients. Uh, I'm joined today with two of my wonderful colleagues. I'm going to introduce yourself, Lucy. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Lucy Boschnek and I'm a special counsel at Herbert Smith Freehills in Sydney. Thanks, Lucy. And I'm joined also by Aaron. Yeah, hi, Steve. Great to join you. Great to join you, Lucy. Um, Aaron Anderson. I'm a partner in the Brisbane office in the Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Thanks, team. So we are a rare, a rare breed, uh, lawyers who deal in health and safety, which means we do a couple of things. We do positive, proactive things to help our clients understand what good looks like. Uh, what good due diligence looks like, what good contractor management looks like, how to draft a policy and a procedure, all that stuff on the proactive side. But a, a necessary part of our job is to help our clients when things don't go well, when things go wrong, either uh, on, on site or in head offices uh, or elsewhere, when there's been a workplace incident. So we're going to talk about that for the balance of the, of the session today. I, I just note at the top, um, thinking of psychosocial wellbeing as much as anything else, that this will be a you know potentially triggering discussion for those of you who've been involved in these things and it's quite surprising to be honest how many organizations we deal with who who have been through you know the trauma of one of these incidents so i just flag that for you listening in and, and you'll choose to respond to that as you see as you see fit i mean aaron for you when, when you think about this topic dealing with clients who've had a workplace incident you know what does it what does it conjure up for for you yeah look steve um for me this really goes to sort of the heart of what we do, um, you know, as safety practitioners. Uh, you know, we, we we give a lot of advice from time to time. We do a lot of proactive work. But that moment, you know, when your mobile phone rings and on the other end is a, a client in crisis, it's in essence when they need us the most. Um, and I think whilst they're really difficult times and they're emotional times, and I think you know, as lawyers, um, we also are, you know, impacted by, you know, the human tragedy sometimes of the significant events we're involved in. Um, but equally over the years, I've found that, you know, clients, this is when they're sort of most grateful, um, they, you know, engage us in their teams, um, you know, where they're dealing with the crisis side by side with them and, you know, putting aside, you know, the the emotion and, um, you know, sort of uh, sort of the outcome in some of these cases. Um, you know, these are the times when we really need to step up as lawyers and support our clients the most. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more, Aaron. And, and this is, you know, for many of our clients, the start of a very lengthy process. And I, and I must say, I, I've dealt with many clients who've had quite serious workplace incidents. And it seems that their business is never quite the same afterwards. Um, there's a, there's a you know, significant human impact on the, the person who's been injured or, or, the, or the family of the person who's been at work suffering these injuries, and you know we can't discount that. But on an organisational level, th th there's a resonation, I think, of, of what it is to go through one of these serious incidents. L Lucy, your your thoughts when you think about this this topic, what it conjures up for you? I completely agree. I think for me, um, these dealing with incidents and these 
issues in the immediate aftermath of an incident are the parts of my career that I remember the most and have the most impact on me. I wholeheartedly agree with what both of you said. It's when we are needed the most. It's when our clients appreciate us the most. Um, and it's when we really, um, I suppose, come together and, and form really strong relationships with with our clients um, through the worst possible circumstances. Um, it's really what matters in our job, I think, the most. There's can be a lot of satisfaction in a court victory or uh, preparing a contract and and um, helping a client with a, with a big project um, and everything going well through one of those projects. That's a fantastic feeling. But um, helping someone through a crisis is, is really, I think, probably the most important part of the job that we do as safety lawyers. Yeah, I mean that's I couldn't couldn't agree more, and that's heartfelt, Lucy. And I, I you know I completely agree. It's an interesting area too because there's um, lots of law in a in a you know statutory sense, lots of things you have to do, and we'll talk through some some framework for thinking all those through on the podcast today. But there's a lot as well, which is really sort of high touch judgment uh, in, in terms of what is the right way to kind of proceed and. You know, I've often found this, the, 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 the values compass of the organisation and what it wants to be and how it wants to deal with and respond to incidents. There's always great stories of CEOs who lean into, you know, serious workplace crises in the car, on the plane, off to site to be present and to be there as part of the, as part of the response. I always find those things, you know, emblematic of, of really inspirational leaders. For me, I've, I've always um, been quite surprised, I suppose, that there's not a really clear objective model for what good crisis management looks like. I've, I've, I've researched this. I've, I've been, you know, academically interested in seeing what else we can pick up. But there's not a great deal out there. Uh, there's lots about incident uh, response in terms of the, the physicality of dealing with incidents, but not necessarily about the philosophy of how you deal with a, a workplace crisis. For me, I've, I've always kind of adopted a model of, of four key questions. First of all, do we know enough? Uh, to respond and invariably, invariably, the initial reports of a workplace accident are, are often not right. They miss something essential or central or there's been some guesswork or supposition to, to fill in a void which time will, will, will later, you know, tell as, as not being right. So first question, do we, do we, do we know enough? Second question, what, what do we have to do? Uh, there will be a range of uh, statutory, contractual, uh, internal systems requirements uh, that compel immediate action, telling the regulator uh, something has occurred, dealing with you know an obligation to notify under a contract. So do we know enough? What do we have to do? And then you move into the realm of choice. What are we choosing to do? How do we choose to deal with the site, deal with the issue, plan, plan the immediate response? And then what does recovery look like? And I think the thing that sticks for me in, in terms of the way in which crisis management has been described is that crisis management is the process of survival. It, it is the process of getting an organisation or a team through something and surviving on the other side and thriving. And, and that is, you know, not to overstate, I think, what the potential impacts can be of, of, of you know, one of these things. I mean, Aaron, for you, when the, when the phone rings and, and it's always 
on a on a rainy night on a Friday evening, uh, often at, at eleven o'clock at night. But when the phone rings and a client advises, I've had you know something quite serious happen. What what are the immediate thoughts? What are the immediate things that you think they should be thinking mm. through on 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 that first moment? Yeah, thanks, Steve. And look, I do agree with your observations. There is no clear model, but from a legal perspective, there's a number of things you need to focus on straight away when you get that phone call. Uh, and you've touched on some of them, but you know, um, under the WHS statutes, of course, there are um, reporting obligations. Um, and if you look at the sort of general model reporting obligations, they require immediate reporting to a regulator. Um, there's also issues around scene preservation. And I've, I've been surprised over the years how many times, in fact, people you know, with good hearts have um, got in and, you know, fairly quickly after an incident, you know, got a broom out and swept things up or shuffled things around, yeah. you know, just uh, sort of inadvertently, um, you know, breaching the law. Um, so, you know, it's really incumbent upon legal advisors to make sure you get those um, real clear um, legal obligations, um, you know, through to your clients uh, and your sister clients in how you go about practically managing those things. Um, I think, um, then, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you know, from a legal perspective, there's some really important things to think about. You know, often the scene itself is not in situ for too long. You know, the police will take charge if it's a fatality, the safety regulator will be there pretty quickly. But, you know, that doesn't mean as an organisation that we shouldn't be getting in there and very quickly getting sort of the forensic scene analysis done, you know, getting our own photographs, our own video footage, you know, understanding what the scene looks like in that first immediate aftermath after an incident, because we don't get that information from the regulators, we don't get that information from the police. If, if you are getting it, then you're in a legal battle with them down the track. Um, so, you know, commissioning people who can help you with that uh, and panelling investigation teams very, very quickly to get that evidence on the immediate, in the immediate aftermath. Um, thinking about whether you need to get an expert to the scene really, really quickly um, because, you know, there's some element here that might require um, expert assistance or expert evidence down the track and really um, experts are best placed if they've sort of seen the scene in situ quite often um, when they're giving evidence in a courtroom three or four years uh, down the track. Um, so they're just some things to think about. Quite often, Steve, as you know, you get multiple regulators. Um, yeah. And you can have multiple regulators on a site, you can have the police on a site, and they're all trying to undertake their own inquiries. And I think uh, that's really, really tricky. Um, so at times you've got to make a judgment call and give advice to your clients on, you know, when you need to push back um, and when you need to cooperate um, or how you need to sort of manage all of the uh, sort of angles that are coming towards you, um, you know, in a, in a period of time where um, everyone's in crisis and there's a lot of work to do. Um, there's other things like comms plans, um, dealing with, you know, the um, immediate stakeholder interests from, um, you know, sort of media and unions, et cetera. Um, and they're very difficult um, to deal with uh, because they'll want to know um, certain information. So, look, Steve, there's just a few touch points. There are, there are many yeah. more. Um, my general observation is there is no one size fits all. Um, from all of the incidents I've been to over the years, you know, you, you have to sort of, uh, you know, keep your eyes and ears open. You have to be sort of very attuned to what's going on and what the regulatory environment is that governs where you are. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really sort of quite often sort of dealing with what's in front of you, you know, minute by minute. <clears throat> Uh, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And lots of our clients would plan for this very situation, do the do the rehearsal to think through whether they've got clarity about what they have to do, what are the notification requirements, how do they contact people who might be affected. Lucy, one of the you know fastest documents drafted uh, in, in any corporation's life is the safety alert uh, bashed out in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of a, of a workplace incident, although probably 
views are, are maturing on that. But what are your thoughts on that? Getting getting some sort of comms out to the business. What are the challenges you think? I th- I think the challenge is primarily people want to put out information, and obviously there is an um, overriding pressure to put that information out because people. Uh, being the workforce, it could be external stakeholders and the media as well, may want that information. I think the key thing to consider is don't just put out information because you think you have to. There needs to be an intention behind the information that you're putting out. Obviously, you want to put out um, information that will ensure worker safety going forward and provide them with information necessary for them to do their job safely. You want to put out information to your workforce also to to build trust um, and alleviate concerns as well that others that that some may have and other people, whether it be your workers or others, may have. So I think in in terms of if you're putting out communications, there needs to be that initial thought of um, what is the purpose of what we're doing, and then the content yeah. of that communication needs to reflect that purpose. Um, you all should think should think of how you're actually delivering that information, um, the method that it's going to be delivered by, um, and also having a um, point of contact for communication. And that also applies to external stakeholders. You've got suppliers or anything who who may rely on you, and um, an incident could affect that supply chain. Um, you're going to want to. Um, advise them and communicate those things to them and also to the media you know the media has a thirst for information uh we we all see that um but it's also being careful about what information is out there never provide information um that is speculative because um that is is unhelpful and it just may not be true and uh, yeah. having having a point of contact for that communication for all dif- different types of um, um, stakeholders, being internal or external is really important. Yeah. Um, it's funny you make that point about the, the form and the purpose in which these sort of alerts are being issued. Often, you know, safety professionals tell me that they're being issued because it's important to remind people of the significance of a particular suite of risk controls to address a hazard, you know, that's arisen in relation to the incident. But I, I know that lots of these safety alerts are not drafted in a way that actually does that. So they're not necessarily drafted with that purpose in mind. Or they're drafted in a form that makes it impossible for a team to deliver. They say, well, you know, it's it's for the purpose of people to read out on a toolbox talk. But it's drafted in a form that is, you know, light on content and, and high on pictures, which sort of lends the the presenter of that information just to be filling the gap, you know, making making things up. Um, Aaron, I... I I know when I get the call and I'm, I'm, I'm helping a client through this, I do have to give the grim news that this often begins what can be a multi-year process, you know, a couple of years conceivably worth of regulatory investigation from a, from a you know, a WorkSafe or a Safe Work, a year or so kicking off in the court process, conceivably a year or so after that before people are giving evidence telling their, telling their story. Um, I think it's important to set that pace you know, on, on the day of an incident, people want to cathartically put it all behind them. What do I have to do to make this resolve? Um, but the truth is that they don't have that control. You know, we, you and I and Lucy, we act for the company uh, nearly always in, in response to this. But individuals, human beings that have a have a 
a legal exposure and a sort of a, a, a values exposure too. What, what's your thoughts on how you can best support them? Yeah, look, uh, it, you know, individuals are the ones who are impacted most, right? And, you know, they're sort of struck with the emotion of it in the immediate aftermath. And one of the real risks, I think, for um, individuals, particularly, you know, workers who might be subject to interviews uh, at some stage by regulators and police is that um, they can very quickly, uh, you know, start to make sort of voluntary statements that might be adverse to their own interests, Steve. Um, and so I think one of the roles that uh, we play as lawyers, and this needs to happen in the early stages, is um, apart from, you know, sort of providing sort of a sense of calmness and understanding that it's a long process. Um, and, you know, whilst individuals might want to get it over and done with quickly, that uh, individuals also need to have a very clear understanding of their rights and obligations. Um, and I think that's one of the best tools that we can pass on uh, is what is, what, yeah. what is it that you've got to do? in the event that a police officer approaches you and says, I want to undertake an interview, or what is it you've got to do when a safety regulator does the same thing? And in fact, um, what are your rights in those circumstances? Can you have a lawyer? Can you say, I don't want to answer your question? Um, and there's a lot of complexities around this. Um, but as you know, sort of, you know, one of the great protections that exists generally under safety legislation is that, uh, you know, em employees um, do have or workers do have the right to have lawyers involved. They do have the right to require um, regulators to exercise um, powers properly. And in the event that they do, they generally uh, get some protections that are afforded to them by the information that they will give to regulators, including generally that that information cannot be used against them. So the way those processes roll out are really, really critical, whether it's in the first 24 hours, the first week uh, or six months down the track. And I think as lawyers, we play an important role I mean, helping to protect individuals through that process. Yeah, I think that's right, Aaron. I always um, take the view that the workers and employees always are grateful for having that information. I can't imagine there's anything more scary than, you know, not only going through a harrowing experience, but then having to face a, a safe work in, inspector and potentially police as well and having to answer all these questions and um, really um, people are really grateful when they have as much information about what the process is going to be like going ahead. Um, and now to kind of follow on for that from that point to another, Steve, I'll ask you, you know, there's a real desire after an incident to get back to work kind of straight away. And then there can be a lot of confusion about that with clients asking us, well, should we be implementing these interim controls? Are we going to get in trouble from the regulator going down the track if um, uh, we just completely change our processes and that can be used as evidence as what was reasonably practical at the time against us and then eventually a court will look at that really badly? What is your advice to clients in this situation? Because I feel like it's something we're, we're constantly asked. Oh, no, it's a perfectly reasonable question. And, you know, you're not, you're not wrong, Lucy, that the, 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 the fact of something being possible uh, is proven by the fact that you do it. So if, if your um, uh, position in relation to the incident is it was not possible to do things to prevent it, well, then you, you, you'll, you'll be belied by the fact that you do it. Uh, you make a change immediately, immediately afterwards. But the position is rarely that. Um, uh, you know, I think the primary obligation of those in control of work or work processes is to make sure that an incident that happens, tragic or serious as it may be, does not happen again. 
it's you know the primary responsibility so that the, the the thoughtfulness with which they identify those potential you know changes that can be made and the rigor with which they apply them is the thing that matters you know in, in the absolute sweep of history that being said though um there, there are legal consequences for for the way in which those changes are described or uh, in, implemented I guess a couple of quick thoughts. One, what what I often find is that there's sort of a rush to do the um, uh, the uh, the over control of a of a particular hazard um, in a way that's probably not sustainable for a business. From now on, we're going to have four operators doing what one operator used to do, and that probably makes sense while the business is in the sort of jittery post incident phase and and you know extra thought and minds on a job might might be a benefit. But whether that's sustainable or necessary in the long term is often you know something that really needs to be thought through you know my advice is for, for organizations to be really clear on what is an interim step that's taken following a workplace incident um, 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 to be clear that that needs to be reviewed after a period of time you know in light of what an investigation or a review of the incident itself might might um, throw up so it's just the difference between saying right from now on we're going to have x number of you know resources applied to this particular job uh, forevermore compared to being expressed and saying well for, for, the, for the next little while this is our interim measure because that might not be right that might have unintended consequences or unintended changes so just being really clear about that use of that use of interim and your point listening about the challenge of you know if we do this now can we say it wasn't reasonably practical before the incident uh, maybe maybe not um but the, you know that the truth will out on what is reasonably practicable there'll be plenty of expert views from a prosecution if that's what if that's what it looks like the, the the fact though i suppose to give comfort to business in just doing what's right after an incident implementing whatever necessary change there is to the process is the fact of the incident is a really important data point uh, it won't excuse something that was foreseeable or should have been thought through but something that was unforeseeable or so extremely rare that that it couldn't have been you know identified in advance and then it occurs well from that point onwards your state of mind your knowledge is different and so it makes sense that you would have a different or enhanced set of set of controls um so you know there's a lot to it Lucy. i think one doing the right thing to manage forward-looking compliance is you know a, a no-brainer in its own way but but a, important that lawyers don't overweight the legal risk of that that is the right thing to do in its future compliance being clear on what you're doing next as an interim or a final control and then asking the question you know if we if we uh, have learned from this incident what will we do differently is a good way of kind of thinking through those things I think sure I mean Aaron we were going to um you know just get your thoughts on uh, the idea that, that you might not be in complete control of what happens after an incident there can often be uh you know a contractor principal site controller uh, you know, large employer, small employer dynamics at play, particularly around the question of who should lead or contribute to investigations. I know this comes up a lot in your work up in the resources sector up north. What What's your thoughts on navigating that? It's really easy, isn't it? <laughs> My thoughts are that it's not very easy, Steve. Um, uh, and look, you know, like different legislative regimes, 
will drive the answer to this. You know, if I, yeah, you're, right. you're right up in the resources space here in Queensland, you know, if you if you look at the resources legislation, there are very strict obligations on certain parties having to carry out investigations and having to prepare reports and having to deliver those things to regulators. So yeah. when you're dealing with those regulatory environments, um, I think sort of the pathway forward in terms of how these things are done is a little bit different and probably easier. Um, although they still carry with them some complexity. But sort of outside of those environments, um, I think it's a really difficult question because, you know, in the sort of immediate aftermath, there's a real sense at times of clients wanting to pair up with the contractors and others on site uh, and cooperate and collaborate in relation to sort of the investigation, understanding the facts and trying to, in a sense, protect each other. Um, to the extent to which, um, you know, third parties, regulators and the police uh, are there investigating the incident. But I, I quite often find over my career that, you know, unfortunately, um, that strategy rarely works. Um, very quickly, it sort of uh, becomes apparent that one party has done something which might be inconsistent with a safety document or an instruction, uh, and then interests start to diverge. Um, and once those interests diverge, it's it's very, very difficult to have the trust and confidence in all of the parties working together to get to the true bottom of what happened and um, yeah. and and then being able to protect each other's legal interests. So look, I think fundamentally um, this assessment um, ought to be made um, beforehand in the event you've got projects or long-term contract partners. There's no reason why you can't have the discussion. There's no reason why you can't agree on things like you know, um, uh, joint very simple factual inquiries very quickly so both parties have the benefit of at least what went on in the immediate aftermath and from that point in, in time people separate, that's okay. Um, yeah. So it needs to be thought through, but look, from a principal's perspective, if it's um, if it's a situation where you've got contractors and uh, they're doing their own um, investigations, I think understanding what your contractual rights are um, and whether you ought to exercise those contractual rights is really important. I think more and more regulators are getting better at pointing to contract terms and saying to people, why didn't you exercise that? Um, because if you had have at the time, that might have made a difference. Um, so getting across those things um, is really important and making a sensible and, and you know, on legal advice, proper um, analysis of what you ought to do or not do um, when it comes to your contractual rights and um, the investigation process itself. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's really well expressed. And I, I think the um, your observation that there doesn't need to be one single investigation report coming out of an incident, I think is a really key learning. There doesn't need to be one document that everyone's thoughts are poured into. There might be multiple. There might be a, a common factual summary of what happens so that people can proceed with confidence of an understanding compared to a more you know, really deep dive kind of root cause reflection as to why it happened or a contractual review as to whose fault it was. And all those things might not necessarily sit in one big bucket or one single document. And for me, that's been a real learning. And I reckon, you know, clients who have a sophisticated approach to this uh, get that, you know, and, and have built a system around all that and gamed it out. I mean, Lucy, we've barely spoken about legal privilege. Can you imagine? Um, lawyers, <laughs> lawyers not talking about this magic spell that they give lawyers of granting privilege over things. But what's your, um, you know, quick reflection, I suppose, on the role of legal privilege? Is it is it over? Is it is is it is it alive and well? Uh, or or is, or is business taking more nuanced approach to it now? It's not over. Is is my opinion, but. Um, you want to actually use privilege um, for the purpose, which is the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice. Um, the reason 
that privilege um, is established over these investigations is to really um, go into a deep dive about what occurred, um, what were the failures, what could have contributed to the incidents, who's at fault, what could have been done differently, um, and what are the legal risks to us. Often the benefits of privileged investigations are to go further than just the limited circumstances of the incident. Um, you'll both agree, I'm sure, Steve and Aaron, that um, in the course of an inc incident investigation, we find not only um, you know, the direct cause or a few contributing causes, uh, but we find other things that are not causally related to the incident, but may actually um, be unsafe that are going on, um, could have contributed to a culture, um, potentially where um, some you know, safety wasn't taken as, as seriously as it should have been. And having a privileged investigation can allow you um, more freedom to look into those issues uh, and have some you know, satisfaction that things remain confidential. But I think it's important as well, uh, you were talking before Aaron and Steve about having a, um, you know, there doesn't have to be one report, there can be a factual report um, that is provided to externally and to external um, stakeholders, to the workforce that, that focuses on the observable facts. Um, but if you use privilege for the purpose that it's intended, it can be a really useful tool. I agree. To, to actually enable getting advice, um, you know, mm. like it or not, there are legal consequences. There is no health and safety law. Um, fine, you know, we'd all have to maybe take up professional painting or whatever we could do. But you know, then there, then there wouldn't be a need for advice following an incident. There wouldn't be a need for reflection, etc. One of the things I, I think of, Lucy, when I think of this topic is that it is now, I think, essential that there is a record that senior leaders, officers, board members, executives, senior executives have been properly briefed on the circumstances of the incident because that's the expectation that they're, they're learning from the incident about the adequacy of the system, that that is their job. Their job is to exercise due diligence over the system. And, you know, significant incidents are obviously important data points there. Completely. And I reckon if you've got a system internally that says, well, we're going to, you know, these, these bloody lawyers have told us everything has to be privileged, you're actually creating a problem. You're creating a, an information deficit at that senior level and an evidence deficit that they, that they can rely on. They've been properly briefed about the oh, incident. Sure. So I, I reckon it's far more, you know, as you've said, a really nuanced kind of perspective. It is, and I think it's important if you've, if you've got a, a using privilege and got a, a privileged report, advice, whatever it is, that uh, your leaders in the business and the directors um, have an understanding and and see that report and, and what's gone on um, to ensure that they are meeting their obligations under their due diligence duties. And following on from that, Steve, um, with leaders and directors and supporting them in after in the aftermath of an incident, what are your recommendations or um, kind of I suppose best practice tips for? what senior leaders and, and directors should do in the aftermath of an incident. I mean, obviously they, they can be brought into a, into a regulate, regulator's investigation sure. as well. Look, I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I reckon we could all talk about this for, for days. I, I, I just want to make one quick observation. In, in my history and perhaps over more recent years, I've actually been quite inspired by the way that 
boards have uh, really worked with executive management to ask the question, how do we make sure something like this never happens again? Now, of course, that's the right question to ask, and that question will have been asked for many, many years. But I reckon now there is a real uh, energy behind doing uh, good uh, arising out of these, you know, awful circumstances and, 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 and asking those genuine questions, what more do we need to get this right? Now, of course, you know, you want to be in a position where you've asked those questions beforehand and you've managed the risk of the incident out, etc. But again, the incident might speak to something that was unimaginable or hadn't been properly kind of foreseen. But I think there's just a real job for, for leaders to stare into that. Now, the, the pull and the push, the pull is doing the right thing and managing that, that risk. The push, the thing that might detract you from that is the the risk of prosecution, the risk of you know legal consequence, the personal blame that can be attached to that for, for directors. And there's a job, there's a job for all of us, I think, regulators, advisors and others to kind of give a sense of balance to, to those two things. Not every serious incident has some director uh, in in court uh, being blamed for the incident. Um, in fact, rarely does that, does that happen. And usually when there's been specific knowledge or foresight, of the particular circumstance of the incident. So to some extent, you know, directors can be freed up to, to ask those probing questions and to properly support the business to, to manage it without fear that they're somehow dealing themselves into to safety risk. But there's a real challenge there. I think there's lots of mixed messages, which makes it a bit difficult, to be honest, for, for senior leaders to work out where they need to be. But progressively, those who've been at this for a while now are getting that sense. Look, I'll, I'll ask you guys a, a final question as we as we hit our time allowance for this podcast. But as you think about this uh, this particular topic, any any final thoughts on ways in which you'd advise those listening on this call to kind of think through how they should prepare themselves for for a workplace incident or the sorts of things we've been talking about? Steve, look, maybe I could chime in. Um, from my experience over many many years, there is quite often a real strong desire from clients to you know, want to cooperate. Um, they're, they're worried about their relationships with the inspectors. They're worried about what it might mean down the track. Will they be targeted if they take a hard line? You know, should they hide the lawyers in the background? Because, you know, that might send a particular message. I think when it comes to, you know, the serious incidents, you know, the ones that we often deal with with our clients, um, I think let's not lose sight of the fact that the regulator and the inspectors, they, they actually have a, a role to play. It's an important role. Um, they're being given particular functions and powers under legislation and they're there to exercise those powers and you know none of it needs to be antagonistic um, you can build good relationships and set good parameters with inspectors and regulators and the exercise of their powers and how they go about um, carrying out investigations but equally you can be cautious and careful um, and seek advice um, and pause uh, and so thinking about what you put in writing and how you communicate and the things you do um, and what that might look like down the track when it comes to the ultimate legal assessment as to whether a party ought to be prosecuted. Um, so I think thinking those things through and not just simply taking the, the line that, look, we better cooperate because it'll get worse for us. Um, that's, yep. That, in my view, is not the best way to deal with these things. It's a, it's a, it's a criminal investigation, uh, quite properly. Society has decided that's the way it's going to be dealt with. Fine. Uh, there's lots of powers on the, on the other side. And so it's a reasonable thing that people treat it as a important legal event for the business. I think that's a great call out, Aaron. Lucy, final thought for you. My final thought is, um, this is something we touched on at the beginning, but have a plan. 
you know, pr prepare for the fact that this may occur. Obviously, nothing can prepare you for the emotion that will be involved. Um, there will always be things, as we've discussed throughout this podcast today, that will come up and they'll be different and they'll throw you and there'll be more or less people involved than you thought. Um, but having some kind of framework and plan in place is invaluable um, in these types of situations. Um, knowing which lawyers you're going to call if you have to um, is, is also really important. You know, touching all Aaron says, it's it's not a time to be embarrassed or hide, hide the fact that you're getting legal advice. So setting down a framework for what you're going to do and how the business is going to deal with a crisis uh, is is really important and will give you some sense of comfort um, if something unfortunately occurs um, within your organisation um, that you have some structures in place to deal with what's ahead. Beautifully put. My final sort of thought on this, I, I, I helped uh, an emergency services provider through um, a, a workplace crisis uh, and so we were doing all this work for them thinking through investigations and processes and so on the thing that struck me was that they had a standing meeting every day as we worked through this particular set of circumstances um, and they would start that meeting with care and concern for those who were responding to the incident making sure that people had, had proper rest that they uh, felt well supported if they needed a second that somebody could step in for them while they stepped out and it was just such a reminder for me that the process of dealing with an incident is of itself an arduous and unplanned event for those who are dealing with it. Not to downplay the effect of those, you know, at the, at the coal face, as it were, but for the team who will be called upon to respond and help the business survive and thrive through the process, that team too needs support. And for me, you know, it's such an easy thing to forget as we all kind of jump uh, on the issue and it's a hot button issue and, it, you know, it takes a lot of attention away from other things. But thinking about the actual team who's responding, it just always struck me as something that, uh, you know, is is to be built into the system. Look, that's a great chat. Th thanks so much, Lucy and Aaron, um, thanks, for Kate. your contributions today. Thanks. As I say, this is our uh, third safety leadership series topic for, for 2022, hard to believe. We're here in December recording this. Um, We'll be back next year, of course, uh, with a new round of a three-part series around a common set of topics or interests. We've hardly talked about COVID this year. It's been it's been great. I'm hoping for that to continue next year. Um, but uh, th thanks so much, guys, and we're looking forward to to bringing you more of this content over the course of next year. Thanks, everyone, for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.